Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego Unified, hit by a cybersecurity threat. These criminal groups could care less about what targets they are attacking. Ultimately, they are after money. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heineman is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. More trouble with towing in the city of San Diego. June, one of the mothers whose vehicle was towed last month, told me that she just remains haunted by the fact that there are others like her who are still out there. An update on the sale of personal data collected by Chula Vista Police. On your mark, get set for Born to Run 2, the ultimate training guide, and solving the mystery of Irma Vep. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. The San Diego Unified School District has been hit by a cybersecurity threat. That's according to Superintendent Dr. Lamont Jackson, who sent a message to parents and staff Friday. We know that immediately all district and staff passwords were changed, and today the process continues of changing all student passwords. What we don't know is the extent of the data breach. The FBI and San Diego police are investigating. Joining me now is Doug Levin, a cybersecurity expert and the national director for the K-12 Security Information Exchange. Doug, welcome to Midday. Thank you for having me. Doug, you work with school districts across the country. How do you support them? So we primarily help build their capacity to defend themselves from emerging cybersecurity risks like the ones that districts around the country are facing, like, like San Diego has experienced uh, and other districts all across the country. So whether that be from a data breach incident, uh, a phishing attack, or protecting uh, from ransomware actors, uh, we provide our members with threat intelligence and best practices and advice to defend themselves. The San Diego Unified Threat is the second cyber attack impacting California schools in just the past couple of months. L.A. Unified had its system held for ransom in September. What happened there? So LAUSD was the target of a ransomware gang that is operating overseas in Russia, though they're not the Russian government per se, but in Russia. They are almost uh, professional in how they work in that they have uh, very 
uh, standard techniques for compromising their victims' networks and extorting money from them. And this particular group has shown a penchant for targeting public school districts all across the country. So LAUSD is only one of their many victims, and they've attacked many other school districts. Ultimately, they're after money. And what they have found is that school district IT systems in general uh, are relatively vulnerable, and they are able to compromise those systems remotely lock them up, and then uh, attempt to extort the district for, in some cases, quite large amounts of money. And this is a technique that works well enough for them and is able to fund uh, their criminal operations. We have certainly seen hospitals and banks targeted by hackers before, but tell us again specifically what is it that a major school district makes attractive to these bad actors, as you call them? The fact of the matter is that these criminal groups really could care less about what targets they are attacking. There is no honor among thieves. Ultimately, they are after money, simply uh, after money. And while we don't think of school districts as wealthy organizations, they manage quite a bit of money on an annual basis. The second thing I should note that they will target is data, particularly personally identifiable information of data of, of people associated with a school district, whether that is teachers, whether that is parents, or students themselves, and this is somewhat counterintuitive to folks, but the identity information of minors, of young children, is actually more valuable on the so-called dark web than for adults. And that's because these criminals can abuse the credit records of young children for years and years before someone realizes that an, uh, an issue has arisen and, and you're able to take steps to stop it. So you know, interestingly, it is money. And if they can't monetize their attacks directly through extortion, they will steal the data and try to sell that as well. I did speak with San Diego Unified Communications Director Maureen McGee this morning, and she told me the district has no additional comment on the current threat until the law enforcement investigation is complete. That said, Doug, how long can we expect an investigation like this to go on? In a situation like this, if if indeed this is a situation, say, that was similar to what happened to LAUSD, where it was a criminal group who attacked the school district. It can take uh, a matter of a, a week or, or two to uh, evict that threat actor from the network, to try to determine what it is they may have stolen, and try to figure out a way to sort of make everyone whole. But hopefully, you know, we will hear an update from the district, you know, in the coming days or week. So what would you say to staff, parents, and students about protecting themselves at this point? Well, given what the district has said, I think it is vitally important that people follow the guidance being delivered by the district to change uh, their passwords. I would strongly encourage those individuals to take advantage of second-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication if it is enabled. And then maybe even more importantly uh, for individuals, if you use uh, the same password that you use with the district with other services to change those passwords as well and implement multi-factor authentication on those accounts. Cyber criminals are known to seek out compromised credentials and then we'll try to reuse them uh, against lots of different services to see if they're able to compromise them. And, and reusing compromised account information is one of the most common ways that cyber criminals cause issues for individuals that leads to credit fraud, 
tax fraud, identity theft, et cetera. So I would not wait to hear more from the district uh, to take those steps to protect the, protect myself if I was a member of the school community. I've been speaking with Doug Levin, National Director for the K-12 Security Information Exchange. Doug, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Stories of two mothers and their children left on the street after their vehicles were towed were recently covered by local TV news. But what about the communities and public parks in which these vehicles stay for days or weeks? Shouldn't the larger community have expectation that the city's laws will be enforced? That's the dilemma city officials will take on when the policy of towing comes up early next year. And joining me is Lisa Halverstadt with The Voice of San Diego. And Lisa, welcome. Thanks for having me. What is the city's current policy on towing vehicles, even when it's obvious that people are living inside those vehicles? The city says it must enforce vehicle code violations in an unbiased way, regardless of housing status, and that it can't turn a blind eye to some violators over others for some of the reasons that you laid out during the intro. Vehicle code violations, though, can include things like expired registrations, outstanding parking tickets, um, violations for parking on public property for 72 hours or more. And these are offenses that often impact people who are living in vehicles. I do think it's worth noting that the city technically does have a ban on living in vehicles on the books, but it's not currently enforcing that um, as it's being challenged in court. And for a good portion of the pandemic, the city was not towing vehicles that people were obviously staying in. But this has shifted in more recent months. You report that a recent analysis found that most of the city's vehicle towing impacts the people who can least afford it. Yes. uh, Last month, city auditors released a report that showed that city towing practices disproportionately impact low-income people. The top two reasons that people are towed, expired vehicle registrations and that 72-hour violation I talked about before, which are often aimed at people living in vehicles, were more likely to result in vehicles being auctioned off by the towing companies to try to recoup the costs associated with impounding them. So that means that people are losing their vehicles because they can't afford to pay impound fees and outstanding tickets before their vehicles are auctioned off. Now tell us more about the recent highly publicized cases of families left with nowhere to go after their vehicles were towed. Yeah, so last month, two mothers with school-age sons um, who were parking in the Mission Bay Park area had the vehicles that they were staying in towed for registration violations. Now, these two moms and their sons were, as you said, forced to spend an especially cold night sleeping outside after they basically pleaded with the police not to tow what were their makeshift homes. Their situation was captured in a video that went viral, and then the situation was covered by multiple news outlets, and it's really generated a lot of conversation among advocates and uh, city officials. And as heartbreaking as that outcome was, City staff say the two mothers were offered shelter. Why didn't they take it? So the city says the officers involved with the tow called the police department's homeless outreach team to see if the team could try to get the families into shelter. But one of the mothers told me that the hot team officer who went to check to see if shelter was available ultimately found that there wasn't space for them that evening. 
um, which was something that had kind of been lost in some previous reporting. This is a common occurrence, though, that there isn't shelter available, especially at such a late hour. As I've written previously on voiceofsandiego.org, in an average week in recent history, just over a third of city shelter referrals have resulted in someone getting a bed, which really speaks to the unmet need, even as the city's been adding a lot more shelter beds. What about the city's policy of offering safe parking lots for people living in vehicles? Why didn't that help these two families? So just to clarify, um, the city does have three safe parking lots where people that are living in vehicles can go and park without fear of getting ticketed or towed. Um, And and one of the mothers, um, June Cloninger, who I spoke with, said that she had previously tried to get into a safe parking lot. And actually, um, she and the other mother, she says, actually called the city's safe parking provider the day before they got towed in hopes of, of securing spaces there, but they didn't hear back after they were until after they were towed. And I think it's just really important to note um, that there's not necessarily, you know, direct correspondence between the city police and the safe parking lots as there is when we often hear about, I know I've talked about on the show before, when police officers offer shelter beds and sometimes they're able to directly refer folks. Um, That didn't happen here. And by the time the um, homeless outreach team arrived to try to talk about potential solutions, um, these two families had their belongings uh, laying out and the toes were already in progress. Now, city council member Stephen Whitburn plans to introduce a new policy on towing next year. What would that be? So uh, council member Whitburn, who actually called for the audit that we were discussing earlier, um, says he initially plans to propose that the city stop towing people for registration violations, 72-hour parking violations, or receiving several unpaid tickets, which again are all offenses that disproportionately affect low-income people. And this doesn't directly address the issue of people living in their vehicles, though. Are other city agencies looking for solutions to towing the cars of the homeless? Yes. So after the story went viral, um, housing commissioners discussed how the city could try to better avoid outcomes like this in the future. Um, At a meeting last month, a couple commissioners noted that tows like this seem to really be counterproductive and actually make it harder to help unhoused people who have lost their vehicles. And there seemed to be general agreement among um, city appointed housing commissioners about this. But the outcome of any conversations that the agency may be having with the city about this is still really to be determined. Lisa, what's happened to the two families who received so much publicity last month? Well, they are now staying in a shelter. Um, They have received a lot of support from a GoFundMe online fundraiser and the nonprofit Housing for the Homeless, um, which helped them to get their vehicles back. Uh, But June, one of the mothers um, whose vehicle was towed last month, told me that she just remains haunted by the fact that there are others like her who are still out there and may be subject to the same sort of situation that she faced last month. I've been speaking with Lisa Halverstadt with The Voice of San Diego. Lisa, thank you. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with MG Perez in for Jade Hindman. Chula Vista officials claim a new policy bans the sale of data picked up by police surveillance tools. But privacy advocates warn most personal information could still lawfully be sold. KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma explains. For years, Chula Vista resident and activist Pedro Rios has advocated for stronger privacy protections in the city. Here he is last year speaking just steps away from City Hall. We should have an expectation of privacy. We should not give up on the expectation of privacy. Otherwise, we are undoing a fundamental principle that the U.S. Constitution affords us. His words resonated in this border city called one of the most surveilled in the country. Rios and others were angry over revelations that Chula Vista police had shared data collected from its license plate readers with federal immigration officials. We should be in front of their door, in front of city council, calling out for the need to have these oversight mechanisms and to hold accountable not only the Chula Vista Police Department, but also city officials. In April, Rios joined a working group of residents, privacy advocates, and tech experts. Their mission? Help Chula Vista create new surveillance guidelines. The goal was to balance police use of surveillance tools like license plate readers and drones with protecting residents' privacy rights. The group had high hopes. But last month, when the Chula Vista City Council ultimately passed a privacy protection policy, Rios was disappointed. For me, it's unclear exactly what the policy does. The policy suggests that Chula Vistan's personal information can't be sold. But is that really true? In a word, no. Albert Fox Kahn is executive director of the nonprofit New York-based Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. This policy has a lot of details, but it also has a lot of loopholes. And from my reading, those exceptions swallow the rule. Khan says exceptions in the policy include any information recorded in a place where people do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. That means any details captured in public places would not be covered, no matter how sensitive. Whether it's your geolocation data, your biometric data, your phone number, your email address, much of the information that's covered by this policy is then simply exempted under that exception because a lot of the surveillance that is shared with vendors is recorded in public. Even worse, Khan says the policy exempts information gathered from surveillance that's part of an active criminal investigation. He says this is the policy's weakest link. When you drive your car through the city, the automated license plate reader could track it. When you're sitting in your backyard, a drone could surveil you. When you're almost anywhere in public, you could be captured by the real-time command center. All of these systems are monitoring people outside the home. Part of what spawned the push for a privacy policy was a contract Chula Vista signed with Motorola Solutions in 2020. That deal gave Motorola wide access to police surveillance data and allowed the tech conglomerate to profit from it. 
California privacy advocate Brian Hofer says the city's new policy does little to stop Chula Vista from entering into a similar contract again. It does not expressly prohibit the selling. Hofer says it's also important to note that the Chula Vista City Council opted for a policy on privacy rights instead of a law. The resident working group specifically asked for a law. The leadership of Chula Vista never had any desire to really take this seriously. If they really wanted to be accountable to the public and say, we think these things are truly important, then they would give it the weight of law and they would hold themselves accountable by making these things enforceable. City council members did not make themselves available to KPBS for an interview before this story was broadcast. But some said at a meeting last month that a new law would be premature. That story from KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma, who joins me now. And Amitha, welcome. It's good to speak with you, Maureen. As you say, this struggle over privacy in Chula Vista really got underway when information got out that state-of-the-art surveillance equipment generated information that could be used by Motorola. Is the contract allowing Motorola to use that information still in place? Yes. The contract that you're referring to, Maureen, actually gives Motorola access to data collected by the city's automated license plate readers, its drones, and really other surveillance equipment. That data is then run through Chula Vista Police Department's real-time operations center. That center basically functions as, as a repository of information that gets assembled in one place and helps police solve crimes. So I'm just giving you a little bit of context here. The contract between Chula Vista and Motorola gives Motorola the right to use that data, that customer data gathered from that surveillance equipment in a way that that financially benefits the company. So what that means is Motorola can analyze that data, publish that data, develop and improve commercial products based on that data and offer subscription services to that data. Overall, is there more surveillance going on in Chula Vista than in other cities in the county? Well, privacy experts say absolutely. And the reason is because Chula Vista borders Mexico. So, you know, the city of Chula Vista has its own surveillance tools. But because the city borders Mexico, that means the city's residents and people passing through are are subjected to basically a giant network of monitoring by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And that network actually includes facial recognition technology, surveillance towers with cameras, radars, infrared sensors, and blimps, and the federal government's own powerful drones and automated license plate readers. So they're basically two layers of drones and and ALPRs that people in Chula Vista may encounter. Now, legally, no one really has an expectation of privacy in a public place. Why do the experts say that this is such a glaring error in the city's new privacy policy? You're absolutely right, Maureen. No one should have an expectation of privacy in a public place. But The city gets to decide how, what gets picked up on people through that surveillance equipment, what data that gets picked up on people in those public places is used, and whether it's sold. What is the argument 
for why all this potential information is needed by the city or law enforcement? I mean, for instance, is Chula Vista's crime rate high? Well, well, that is the issue. So if you hear city officials, police officials talk about this, they'll say public safety. You know, we're just trying to protect residents from crime. As for Chula Vista's crime rate, it's basically, it's, it's all relative. Stats for, for violent crime in the city, murder, rape, and robbery are below the national and state averages and San Diego's as well. What does Chula Vista's incoming mayor, John McCann, have to say about the privacy issue? Maureen, we, we were unable to schedule an interview with John McCann. There's, there's been a lot of back and forth in emails trying to set up a time to speak with him. And unfortunately, our, our schedules just couldn't align. Was this an issue at all in the recent mayor's race in, in Chula Vista? It was mentioned, but it wasn't a gigantic issue. You know, Chula Vista is a city of 277,000 people. It's hard to gauge just how deep a concern this is. According to city polling, the issue of surveillance and privacy isn't the top issue for residents there. Now, as you alluded to, the subtext to this surveillance and the protest against it in this South Bay city is immigration. Has anyone come out and claimed the city is trying to surveil undocumented people? Immigration is a part of the subtext here. When information came out that Chula Vista PD had been sharing data collected through its ALPRs, automated license plate readers, when that information came out and there was an uproar over it, the, the police department announced that it was no longer turning that information over to the feds. That may have been one of the motivators to, to rile people up and say, look, we, we need a policy that protects people's privacy. And I think that's the larger issue. People do not understand. They have no idea what's being gathered on them through these surveillance tools without their knowledge. And they don't know what's being done with that information. So these are the questions that Chula Vista is facing, but they're not the only city. San Diego recently passed its own privacy protection law. San Francisco has one, Oakland has one. There are dozens of cities across the country that are grappling with these issues and have passed laws as a result. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thanks. Thank you, Maureen. Christopher McDougall wrote his book, Born to Run, in 2009, after hearing about runners from Mexican tribes competing in an American ultramarathon. He followed them back to Mexico's Copper Canyon to find out how they ran so far, so effortlessly. He also wanted to understand why, as a runner himself, he suffered many injuries. McDougall has now published a sequel with co-author and running coach Eric Orton called Born to Run 2, The Ultimate Training Guide. McDougall and Orton spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. So Christopher, Born to Run 2 is an illustrated guide rather than purely narrative or reporting. 
What made you want to publish this as the follow-up to Born to Run? I felt that there was so much information that I was reluctant to say when I originally wrote Born to Run because I wasn't convinced I really knew what I was talking about. At the time I wrote Born to Run, I was writing writing it from a perspective of an injured ex-runner who had been sort of coached back to health by this traditional uh, lifestyle and approach. But I didn't have enough miles on the vehicle to know if it really worked. And now, you know, 15 years later, I can look back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that approach really worked. And I felt it was time to share it with other people. Christopher, what are some of the things you learned or ways you were maybe challenged after publishing that first book in 2009? Yeah, I think the most crucial thing was a lesson that Eric Wharton taught me at the very beginning, which should have been very simple, but it's taken me a lot of years to really appreciate how profound it was, which is that if you change the behavior, you will change the outcome. If you change the way your body physically moves, you will change the way your body heals or avoids injury. And so many of us keep forgetting to listen to that that wisdom because we're always looking for a patch or a fix or a quick diet or a pair of shoes that will solve our problems for us. And after Born to Run came out, a lot of people felt like, okay, we'll just buy a minimal shoe and that will solve our problems. Then we'll run like ancient people. But Eric always said, it's never about the shoes. It's about the running form. It's about how you move your body. Like That is the secret to running success. Can you take us back to the first book and who the Tarahumara or Raramuri people are? Yeah, the Raramuri are an indigenous culture who live deep in the Copper Canyons of Mexico. And they made a pretty profound life choice about 600 years ago when the conquistadors first invaded the Americas. So, you know, the Mayans and the Aztecs fought back and largely disappeared. But the Tarahumara did the opposite. They just retreated deep into these canyons and remained in isolation ever since. So to this day, the Raramuri or Tarahumara, as both called, live a lifestyle that is really reminiscent of the way they have for hundreds of years. And that is a lifestyle based on running long distances through really inhospitable terrain. But what was so startling for me when I when I heard about the, the Tarahumara and got a chance to visit them was seeing people who were like 70, 80 years old, wearing thin little homemade sandals, running for 60, 70 miles at a time. And I started to ask myself, well, what are they doing different? You know, if running is bad for the body, if it's supposed to break down your knees, well, how come their knees aren't breaking down? How come it's not bad for their bodies? And that's what really opened my eyes to the potential that could be learned from the way they live. Eric, you're a coach and you appeared in the first book as a character. How did you decide what needed to be in the second book? Oh, I got a call from Chris um, last September and... We started discussing this idea, and both Chris and I hear from runners all over the world about, you know, how, how do you put this all together? How did you do it, Chris? How did you go down to the Copper Canyon and run 50 miles when you were a broken down runner? And he gave a lot of people a lot of hope. And, you know, as, as Chris is alluding to, you know, running is a magic pill, and it can be a magic pill for a lot of reasons. And this is what's really built into Born to Run too. And one thing in the first few pages of this new book is this idea of the run-free feeling, uh, which it seems like is more than just shoes or no shoes. Eric, can you talk about what that means? Yeah, it really starts with the foundation, I believe, with running and with athleticism. Athleticism is awareness. And we really wanted, with everything we did in the book, there's always a component of really 
trying to get the runner, the athlete to begin to feel what good is, begin to feel good form and how good the body can feel when it eats the right types of foods and how good running can be. And Chris is a perfect example. He's 15 years later from the original born to run, and he's a better runner today than he was back then. Eric, in terms of what is included in the guide sections of this book, how are you envisioning people reading and using this book practically? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think the the best start is to read through the book in in its entirety and, and read all the way through it. And then maybe go back and reread the, the, the chapters that include the, the free seven, which is the kind of the nuts and bolts of, of the program. And at the end, which is a 90 day program. So you're kind of going back and revisiting, um, after reading through the whole book. And then I think it's really goes to kind of setting a a day for yourself where you, when you're going to start the 90 day program and, maybe corral some of your buddies and your friends to all start at the same day. So you guys are all doing the same workout beginning at the same day and have, have a great camaraderie and, and teamwork that goes into the 90 day program. And Eric, do you have practical tips? Those, those uh, nuts and bolts for someone who may want to get started or a, a runner who feels like they're frequently injured? Yeah, I, I think run form is kind of the big foundation. And in the book, we talk about how we can really fix your run form in five minutes. And it's it's so easy to learn. And we do that by just simply standing in front of a wall, turning on the song Rock Lobster by the B-52s and running in place barefoot. running to the beat of the music, which gives you proper cadence. And this goes back to one of your original questions of learning to notice what it feels like. And just doing that simple exercise, you're going to know how to strike the ground, where to strike the ground, and have perfect form in a matter of five minutes. love that. And there's also a playlist of other songs that also work in the book, right? Yeah. The, again, the idea is that Rock Lobster or many other songs have the, the beat of the music is built on 180 beats per minute, which is kind of the golden standard for run cadence or frequency or how often we strike the ground when we run. The, the quicker, the closer we can get to 180, the more healthy and the more um, proper foot placement we're going to have while we run, which will keep us really, really healthy. So I am a lifelong trail runner. And when I was training for my first ultra marathon, I had to Google how to make some of the recipes from the first book, but this book does have recipes in it. Um, Eric, can you tell us about a favorite recipe in the book? Yeah, I, I love all the on the go snacks, whether it's Billy's, uh, muffins or Margo's, um, Pemmican. Um, I, I think, you know, sometimes when we try to create these recipes that replace other things, they maybe don't taste as good. Um, but 
that, that that's what I'm really excited about. Not only are these really, really natural, but they, they actually taste good and so simple to make. So Christopher, alongside the, the practical training tips in the book, we also have dozens of stories. Uh, for example, we learn a little bit about Jordan Marie Brings Three White Horses Daniel, uh, who painted a blood red handprint across her mouth when she ran in the 2019 Boston Marathon. What can stories like this tell us? It was a fascinating thing to start to explore the topics for this book because originally my concept was I wanted to be very practical, very bare bones, very what to do. But then when I would reach out for advice or counsel, like to Jordan, for instance, to ask about Native American running traditions, and then she would tell me her own personal story. And I thought, this has got to go in the book. Uh, it, it's got to be more than advice because these stories are so impactful and inspiring. Because what, what Jordan told me was she was a Division I competitive collegiate athlete. She comes from uh, Native American running royalty. Her godfather is Billy Mills, gold medals in 10,000 meters in the Olympics. So she comes from a competitive family, and yet there's always something lacking. And what she found was when she began running with purpose, when she began dipping into a Native American tradition of using running as a form of prayer, for the first time in her life, she just felt that she was flying. She felt that her, her running meant more. She felt faster and freer. And it was a story like that that really educated me and how people can transform their own running from this kind of miserable thing they put themselves through because they ate too much haagen yesterday and instead make it something that feels good and purposeful and, and happy. And anything that feels joyful is going to put you on an upward spiral. It's going to make you want to do it more and you get better at it and you want to do it even more. With Jordan, what she wanted to do was point out the number of murdered and missing indigenous women there are across the country that are not getting the proper law enforcement attention. So when she was running the Boston Marathon, she painted a blood red handprint across her mouth to indicate people who've been silenced by violence. And she said she had never run a race where she felt more emotional, more sad, but more soaring in her life. Thank you both so much. Julia, thank you. That was terrific. Yeah, thanks, Julia. That was great. That was Christopher McDougall and Eric Orton, authors of Born to Run 2, speaking with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon Evans. Orton and McDougall will hold a virtual event with Warwick's Books at 4 p.m. on Tuesday. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Hindman. Charles Ludlam's 1984 play, The Mystery of Irma Vep, serves up ridiculous fun for the holidays at Diversionary Theater. The play has two actors playing 35 roles in a pop culture mashup. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando went behind the scenes of tech rehearsal last week to speak with Diversionary Theater artistic director Matt Morrow, who is also co-directing the play. Matt, this is the mystery of Irma Vep. So let's start with who is Irma Vep? Irma Vep is a legend. Irma Vep is an idea. Irma Vep is based in part of our cultural heritage in film history. And Charles Ludlum, who is the playwright behind the mystery of 
Permavep, uh, loved classic films, and he loved the classic film that introduced Irma Vep as a character. And so I think Irma Vep, for the mystery of Irma Vep, is really anyone. It's about revealing each other's identity. Irma Vep as a classic character was master at disguise. She wasn't a vampire, even though Irma Vep is an anagram for vampire. She was a master of disguise. And in Irma Vep, the two actors who play all of these roles have to be masters of disguises. And through the course of the story, each character learns more and more about each other and themselves. And so I think Irma Vep is really um, the, the sort of central idea behind the show that uh, we can never truly know one another. And living with one another is about an effort to know one another. And one of the unique things about this play is there are 35 characters, but only two actors. Mm -hmm. First, you have to find the right two actors, which is a huge challenge. But we are so lucky that we have the incredible talents of Brian Banville and Luke Harvey Jacobs. They bring so much joy and so much talent and so much depth to uh, each character and so much specificity that it's just, it's a miracle to watch them transform from one character to the next within like five seconds. And what does this play look like in terms of the production design? The production design is so wonderfully wacky and weird and fun. It takes place between the two wars in an old Victorian home in Northern England. But we really wanted to take a, a more sort of fun and avant-garde view on the set. So we are taking uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, another historic classic horror film, and mashing it up with Pee-wee's Playhouse and sort of spinning it on its head. So everything is a little distorted and a little strange, and everything is done with a sense of joy and delight. Tell people a little bit about who Charles Ludlam was in this theater of kind of the ridiculous. Charles Ludlam is a genius. Um, he is sort of the forefather of queer theater in our country. He was doing theater in New York City in the East and West Villages uh, between 1960, the late 1960s all the way to the late 1980s. And he founded the Theatrical Ridiculous Company. Uh, and he wrote and directed and starred in multiple plays. A lot of those plays, especially in the, in the 60s and early 70s, featured uh, drag and when drag was illegal. Um, so it was really counterculture what he was doing back then. Most of his plays are sort of sprawling epics with huge casts. The Mystery of Irma Vep is a cast of two but has multiple characters. So he really took his epic theater and sort of condensed it. But over the 30 years that he was working, he created a number of shows that went on to influence pop culture icons like John Waters, like Charles Bush, you know, people who are still working today like RuPaul. Charles Ludlam was doing all of this before anyone really knew about it in the village of New York City. Unfortunately, we lost him uh, in the HIV AIDS epidemic in the late 80s, but we're lucky enough that uh, his works live on and The Mystery of Irma Vep is his most produced work. And we're just so honored to bring him back to Diversionary Theater. And to do his work in a queer theater, it feels like a gift. It feels so special to have his spirit and to have his words happening here at Diversionary Theater, the third oldest queer theater in the country. And in addition to a lot of characters crossing that stage, there's also kind of a lot of different genres and tropes and 
things that he riffs on in this. So what kind of things can people expect to see? Uh, people can expect to see a wonderful mashup of styles from gothic horror, Victorian romance, B-horror movies, as well as like Penny Dreadfuls, which were like serial horror stories that were written in the late 1800s, as well as like sort of high literary art uh, like James Joyce and Shakespeare. All of this is sort of mashed up and swirled into this delightful macabre story that is outrageous and utterly hilarious. And what made you decide to pick this play at this particular time? You know, I picked The Mystery of Irma Vep because I feel like we need it to laugh. And, you know, we're still emerging from the pandemic right now. And theater is still sort of finding its footing. And The Mystery of Irma Vep is about, very much about, the joy of theater and connecting through the art of theater. And, and you know, I felt like that's what we all needed to be reminded of right now during this holiday season. The joy of connecting with one another, the joy of connecting with great art that brings you laughter and, and, and makes you, you know, realize that, you know, we're all more similar to one another than we think. And, and I think that we all just sort of need to feel that connection and sort of sisterhood right now. One of the things about diversionary that's very nice is it has this intimate stage where you can literally be a couple feet away from your performer. So how did you feel this play like fit on your particular stage? Diversionary is so special because every seat is no farther than about 10 feet away from the actor. So you are literally in the actor's lap. And so that creates this really special bond and connection between the audience and the actor. And to have two virtuosic actors be able to change characters in a flash right in front of you. That is thrilling. I think that um, audience members, when they come to see The Mystery of Irma Vep, are going to be absolutely thrilled and have their socks knocked off just by watching these performances and watching these quick changes and watching these characters evolve. And for this particular play, you're co-directing. So what is that experience like? You know, co-directing is so fun. Allison Spratt Pierce and I have enjoyed a lovely, creative, fertile relationship long before this show. Um, she's been on the diversionary stage many times, and I've had the joy of directing her many times. And she is one of the funniest people that I know. And uh, she also brings this uh, wealth of skill when it comes to movement and physicality, as well as language. And those are two things that I lack, frankly. And so she kind of picks up the slack there. And I think as a director, I'm really good in terms of story and theme and keeping um, those sort of things on track. So I think we complement each other really well in that way. Uh, having someone there by your side, it feels really nice to have a partner to make those decisions and help guide the ship. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking about Irma Vep. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Beth. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Matt Morrow. Irma Vep runs through December 24th at Diversionary Theater in University Heights. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.